It's about showing the American people that democracy still works, notwithstanding all the talk of its demise. Well, let's talk about both of those things today, shall we? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why I got the feeling that something ain't right. It is and it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also, in a whole bunch of other cities and states around the country and the world that I don't have time to list. Because yes, we've got another one of those huge shows. As we blanket planet Earth five days a week, right here on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me... From Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we will go from some of the brightest news we have been able to report on this program in a long time today to some of the grimmest news uh, that the nation is now forced to reckon with. So buckle up and all of that. Uh, pardon the whiplash on today's broadcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Before we get to the light and the dark today, Alaska and Wyoming held their midterm primaries on Tuesday. Both states have just one single so-called at-large U.S. House seat. In Wyoming, the very conservative Donald Trump critic Liz Cheney is facing likely defeat in her GOP primary against Trump-backed Harriet Hageman after Cheney both voted in favor of Trump's second impeachment and is leading uh, as vice chair the bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection and Donald Trump's many attempts failed attempts to steal the 2020 election. Alaska, meanwhile, even with just one U.S. House seat, is actually holding two elections for it on Tuesday. One, a special election to fill the few remaining months of the term uh, of the uh, late uh, Republican uh, Congressman Don Young, who filled that seat for 49 years there are three candidates running under the state's new ranked choice voting system in that special election, which means that results in it are unlikely to be known until the end of this month. One of those candidates is the state's former governor who quit halfway through her first term, first and only term. That would be Republican Sarah Palin. She could soon be a member of Congress. She's also running in the state's open primary with dozens of candidates for the full House term to replace Don Young beginning next January. Four candidates, likely to also include Palin, uh, are being selected by voters on Tuesday and will advance to this November's ranked choice election for the full House term. Also in Alaska, also running in the state's new open primary systems, Incumbent Republican U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski, who has also been targeted, like Liz Cheney, by Donald Trump after voting to remove him from office after his second impeachment trial for inciting the January 6th insurrection. Murkowski is believed likely to be one of the four who advance to the November election. 
We've heard of no problems so far today for voters in either state, and we will have whatever noteworthy results may be available on our next broadcast. But the big story today, a huge story, in fact, is a huge victory for Democrats, for Americans, and I would argue, not to overstate it, for the planet, the world, and mankind itself. Am I overstating it, Desi Doyle? <laughs> you are definitely not overstating it. I, and I think that is actually true, no matter how many flaws or how much more I might have liked to have seen in what the Democrats are now calling the Inflation Reduction Act, a trimmed-down version of their Build Back Better bill. As AP reports, President Joe Biden signed Democrats' landmark climate change and health care and, yes, tax bill into law on Tuesday. The legislation passed by Democrats without a single Republican vote in either chamber, with the barest of Democratic majorities in each, includes the most substantial federal investment in history to fight climate change, some $400 billion over the next decade to move the nation from dirty fossil fuels to clean, renewable energy and to cut carbon emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, even more than just carbon, by some 40 percent by 2030. It also caps prescription drug uh, costs at $2,000 for Medicare recipients. It would allow Medicare to negotiate for lower prices with drug companies for the first time ever, and it will help an estimated 13 million Americans pay for health care insurance by extending additional subsidies to those who purchased insurance on the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare exchanges. It would also increase taxes on hugely profitable corporations that currently pay zero in taxes, and it would decrease the deficit, among other things, many of them longtime Democratic priorities. In a triumphant signing ceremony at the White House on Tuesday, after months of negotiation with coal state Democratic Senator Joe Manchin to pass a bill that he would tolerate, President Biden pointed to the law as proof that democracy, no matter how long or messy the process, can still deliver for American voters. Here are the president's remarks from the White House earlier on Tuesday before signing his party's landmark bill. I'm about to sign the Inflation Reduction Act in the law, one of the most significant laws in our history. Let me say from the start, with this law, the American people won and the special interests lost. The American people won and the special interests lost. We're in a session of, for a while, people doubted whether any of that was going to happen. But we are in a season of substance. This administration began amid a dark time in America. As Jim said, a once-in-a-century pandemic, devastating joblessness, clear and present threats to democracy and the rule of law, doubts about America's future itself. And yet, we've not wavered, we've not flinched, and we've not given in. Instead, we're delivering results for the American people. We didn't tear down, we built up, we didn't look back, we look forward. And today, today offers further proof that the soul of America is vibrant, the future of America is bright, and the promise of America is real and just beginning. Look. 
The bill I'm about to sign is not just about today. It's about tomorrow. It's about delivering progress and prosperity to American families. It's about showing the American and the American people that democracy still works in America, notwithstanding all the, all the talk of its demise. Not just for the privileged few, but for all of us. You know, I swore an oath of office to you and to God to faithfully execute the duties of this sacred office. To me, the critical duty, the critical duty of the president is to defend what is best about America. And that's not hyperbole. Defend what's best about America, to pursue justice, to ensure fairness, and deliver results that create possibilities, possibilities that all of us, all of us can live a life of consequence and prosperity in a nation that's safe and secure. That's the job. Fulfilling that pledge to you guides me every single hour of every single day in this job. You know, presidents should be judged not only by our words, but by our deeds. Not by our rhetoric, but by our actions. Not by our promise, but by reality. And today is part of an extraordinary story that's being written by this administration and our brave allies in the Congress. This law, this law that I'm about to sign, finally is delivering on a promise that Washington has made for decades to the American people. I got here as a 29-year-old kid. We were promising to make sure that Medicare would have the power to negotiate lower drug prices back then. Back then, prescription drug prices. But guess what? We're giving Medicare the power to negotiate those prices now on some drugs. This means seniors are going to pay less for the prescription drugs while we're changing circumstances for people in Medicare by putting a cap, a cap of a maximum of $2,000 a year on their prescription drug costs, no matter what the reason for that, those prescriptions are. That means if you're on Medicare, you'll never have to pay more than $2,000 a year, no matter how many prescriptions you have, whether it's for cancer or any other disease. No more than $2,000 a year. And you all know it because a lot of it come from families that need this. This is a godsend. This is a godsend to many families and so, so long overdue. The Inflation Reduction Act locks in place lower health care premiums for millions of families who get their coverage under the Affordable Care Act. Last year, a family of four saved on average $2,400 through the American Rescue Plan that I signed in the law that the Congress voted in place. In the years ahead, Thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, 13 million people are going to continue, continue to save an average of $800 a year on health insurance. The Inflation Reduction Act invests $369 billion to take the most aggressive action ever, 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 ever in confronting the climate crisis and strengthening our, our economic, our energy security. It's going to offer working families thousands of dollars in savings by providing them rebates to buy new and efficient appliances, weatherize their homes, get tax credit for purchasing heat pumps and rooftop solar, electric stoves, ovens, dryers. It gives consumers a tax credit to buy electric vehicles or fuel cell vehicles new or used. And it gives them a credit, a tax credit of up to $7,500 if those vehicles were made in America. American auto companies, along with American labor, are committing their treasure and their talent, billions of dollars in investment to make electric vehicles and battery and electric charging stations all across America. 
made in America, all of it made in America. This new law also provides tax credits that's going to create tens of thousands of good-paying jobs, and clean energy manufacturing jobs, solar factories in the Midwest and the South, wind farms across the plains and off our shores, clean hydrogen projects, and more all across America, every part of America. This bill is the biggest step forward on climate ever, ever, and it's going to allow going to allow us to boldly take additional steps toward meeting all of my climate goals and the ones we set out when we ran. It includes ensuring that we create clean energy opportunities in frontline and fence-line communities that have been smothered, smothered by the legacy of pollution and fight environmental injustice that's been going on for so long. And here's another win for the American people. In addition, in addition to cutting the deficit by $350 billion last year, in my first year in office, and cutting at $1.7 trillion this year, this fiscal year, we're going to cut the deficit point out by another $300 billion with the Inflation Reduction Act over the next decade. We're cutting deficits to fight inflation by having the wealthy and big corporations finally begin to pay part of their fair share. Big corporations will now pay a minimum of 15 percent tax instead of us five, 55 of them got away with paying zero dollars in federal income tax on $40 billion in profit. And I'm keeping my campaign commitment. No one, let me emphasize, no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. Folks. The Inflation Reduction Act does so many things that, for so many years, so many of us have fought to make happen. And let's be clear. In this historic moment, Democrats sided with the American people, and every single Republican in the Congress sided with the special interest in this vote. Every single one. In fact, the big, Trump comp big drug companies spent nearly $100 million to defeat this bill. $100 million. And remember, every single Republican in Congress voted against this bill. Every single Republican in Congress voted against lowering prescription drug prices, against lowering health care costs, against the fairer tax system. Every single Republican, every single one, voted against tackling the climate crisis, against lowering our energy costs, against creating good-paying jobs. My fellow Americans, that's the choice we face. We can protect the already powerful or show the courage to build a future where everybody has an even shot. That's the America I believe in. That's what I believe in. And today, and today, we've come a step closer to making that America real. Today, too often, we confuse noise with substance. Too often, we confuse, we confuse setbacks with defeat. Too often, we hand the biggest microphones to the critics and the cynics who delight in declaring failure while those committed to making real progress do the hard work of governing. Making progress in this country is a, as big and complicated as ours clearly is not easy. It's never been easy. But with unwavering conviction, commitment, and patience, progress does come. Your dad was right. 
And when it does, like today, people's lives are made better and the future becomes brighter and a nation can be transformed. That's what's happening now. From the American Rescue Plan that helped create nearly 10 million new jobs to once-in-a-generation infrastructure law that will rebuild America's roads, bridges, ports, deliver clean water, high-speed internet to every American, to the first meaningful gun safety law in 30 years. And if I have anything to do with it, we're still going to have an assault weapons ban, but that's another story. And to get significant veterans' health care law in decades for the first time to a groundbreaking chips and science law that's going to ensure that technologies and jobs of the future are made here in America, in America. And all this progress is part of our vision and plan and determined effort to get the job done for the American people so they can look their child in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to make it sure that the democracy delivers for your generation, because I think that's at stake. And now, I know there are those here today who hold a dark and despairing view of this country. I'm not one of them. I believe in the promise of America. I believe in the future of this country. I believe in the very soul of this nation. And most of all, I believe in you, the American people. I believe to my core, there isn't a single thing this country cannot do when we put our mind to it. We just have to remember who we are. We are the United States of America. There's nothing beyond our, nothing beyond our capacity. That's why so many foreign companies decide to invest their make chips in America. Billions of dollars. We're the best. We have to believe in ourselves again. And now I'm going to take action that uh, I've been looking forward to doing for 18 months. <laughs> and assign the special reduction. Uh, he has been looking forward to that indeed. Joe Biden at the White House on Tuesday uh, <laughs> before signing the landmark in so-called frankly, stupidly named Inflation Reduction Act. But I guess that's what they had to call it in order to get Joe Manchin to sign on. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. what it took. Uh, anyway, from that huge win, as I said earlier, for Democrats, Americans uh, and for the, as I said, the planet, the world and mankind itself, that's all. Uh, with a bit more on it later this hour in Desi Doyen's latest Green News report, yes. if time allows. It we'll better. see. We'll see. <laughs> um, from that uh, great news to some of that darkness that the president was briefly citing there. Unfortunately, while I share at least some of his hope for a brighter day ahead, I also fear that we're going to have to continue working through some pretty dark times to get there. We have been reminded about that once again over this past week following the encouraging news that the DOJ and FBI are, in fact, taking at least some direct action to hold our former president accountable for at least some of his countless crimes, including now having apparently stolen classified, highly sensitive national security documents from the White House when he left office. But that good news about accountability has also triggered some very dark threats in this country. We'll talk about some of those threats next and what, if anything, 
can be done about them with online terrorism and right-wing threat expert Stephanie Foggett of the Sioux Fawn Center. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. On Monday, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reported on a man in Pennsylvania who was arrested and charged in U.S. District Court with, quote, influencing, impeding, or retaliating against federal law enforcement agents after posting extraordinarily graphic threats about murdering FBI agents on his social media. The man is currently in custody and had an initial hearing Monday before a federal judge. The Post-Gazette reports that the man was angered by the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago in Florida last week, allegedly threatening to, quote, slaughter federal officers and compared the FBI to Nazi secret police and the KGB. He also allegedly posted that everyone who works for the FBI deserves to be murdered and vowed to never be taken into custody by federal agents. Last week, he declared on social media, quote, My only goal is to kill more of them before I drop. I will not spend one second of my life in their custody. He is now in their custody. The um, According to the uh, Pittsburgh paper, most of the man's violent posts were made under a pseudonym at the anti-Semitic far-right social media platform called Gab before a domestic terrorism group flagged the posts to the FBI late last week on the same day that another man died in an hours-long standoff with police in Ohio after he attempted to attack the FBI's field office in Cincinnati, wearing body armor and armed with a nail gun and an AR-15. That man was a Trump supporter who posted a lot of extremist content, including on Trump's own Truth Social media site. After being angered by the FBI search at Trump's Florida residence, he also reportedly had ties to extremist groups and was at the January 6th insurrection. As we detailed on our previous broadcast, The FBI and DHS late last week released an alarming bulletin warning that the agencies were fielding what they described as a, quote, unprecedented spike in violent threats being made against federal law enforcement, courts, government employees and buildings going so far as to cite a threat, quote, to place a dirty bomb, a radioactive explosive device in front of FBI headquarters in D.C., A noteworthy uptick in the unprecedented targeted threats followed the FBI's execution of that search warrant at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida last week, as officials sought to retrieve highly classified documents that were stolen by the former president of the United States when he left office in early 2021. 
Names of at least two agents who signed off on the paperwork for that search have been circulating online since Trump released an unredacted version of the search warrant. The version of the same warrant, unsealed by a federal judge late last week, had obscured the names of those law enforcement officials. The DHS and FBI bulletin warned that the threats were, quote, occurring primarily online and across multiple platforms, including social media sites, web forums, video sharing platforms and image boards. But the outrage is not coming from nowhere, as Matt Gertz at Media Matters rounded up last week, days after the news of the search was made public by Trump himself. Quote, Fox News and other right wing outlets described the search as, quote, the worst attack on this republic in modern history. Part of a, quote, preemptive coup to prevent Trump's reelection and a sign that the country is now a, quote, tyranny. They say the FBI is acting like, quote, the East German Stasi in the Cold War and the Nazi Gestapo. And they call agents part of a, quote, lawless criminal organization that, quote, planted evidence, bugged Trump's bedroom and may be planning his assassination. Moreover, Gertz warns they are quick to tell their viewers at Fox that they should fear for their own persecution in the wake of the search. According to right wing outlets, quote, the real target of this investigation is you because the perpetrators are, quote, uh, trying to show all of us that will be destroyed if we find them and, quote, are at war with the American people. If this is what they're able to do to the former president of the United States, think about what they could do to you, to anybody in America. That warning from Laura Trump, Fox News contributor and Trump's own daughter-in-law. Even after rhetorical attacks turned violent in Cincinnati last week and resulted in the death of that Trump supporter who attacked the FBI field office, Trump's own son, Don Jr., railed against what he described as intimidation and dictatorship in a video that he posted online. It's intimidation, folks. And the number one thing we can do to save America and prevent us from becoming the dictatorship that these guys would like is to drain the swamp and fire all of the bureaucrats. Enough is enough, folks. This stuff will never end until we do something about it. And they're going to get to a point where we're not going to be able to. So now is the time to push back on this insanity. Push back? How so, Don? He didn't mention, at least not yet, in particularly dark corners of the web, as Vice News reported last week, far-right extremists were making violent anti-Semitic threats against the judge who signed the search warrant for the uh, Mar-a-Lago search with multiple members posting his home address, phone numbers, names of his family members alongside threats of extreme violence. Let's find out if he has children, one user wrote, where they go to school, where they live, everything. Stephanie Foggett is a research fellow at the Sufan Center and director of global communications at the Sufan Group, an independent nonprofit organization offering research, analysis and strategic dialogue on global security challenges, foreign policy issues, counterterrorism and violent extremism, which I guess brings everything from around the world back here to home. Among her areas of expertise are online extremism and the rise of white supremacy extremism 
terrorism, monitoring, among other things, neo-Nazi groups online. Stephanie Foggett, welcome to the broadcast. Hello, Brad. Thank you so much for having me today. So uh, thank you for being here. Uh, This is uh, grim, uh, if I have to say, not entirely surprising at this point. I want to make sure, though, that I haven't either over-characterized or under-characterized for listeners the current threat environment as you see it following the the search at at Trump's home in, in Florida last week. Um, no, so I think, you know, not surprising, that's, that's exactly something that I, I would say about this. This rhetoric is alarming, but it is not surprising, especially given the online spaces and the activity that I watch every day. So as you touched upon, I do monitor, um, I monitor really the darkest and more violent corners of this um, information ecosystem. And I really think Above all, for your uh, listeners, mm-hmm. it's important to know that these threats and attacks on law enforcement that we heard from, they're not coming out of a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And uh, further, the actors that are threatening or targeting the FBI and law enforcement today, they're not actors that are likely to be motivated by this single issue. Mm. Well, they, yeah, so that- what I mean by this is, it, yeah, um, their view of the FBI and law enforcement, it's going to have been formed within this far-right ecosystem, and that has really important repercussions that mm-hmm. we should be grappling with. Well, yeah, that's what I wondered, uh, because, you know, some of this stuff we have seen for years from Trump supporters and, and as they become uh, increasingly militant. But was there, in fact, a uh, were you able to spot a specific increase in this type of rhetoric on the heels of the Mar-a-Lago search? And, and was that only among the, the far right neo-Nazi places on the Web or is this? Uh, if there was an increase, was it also among the more mainstream outlets that you that you monitor, uh, including, I guess, Trump's own social media network? Um, yeah, that's correct. So I've certainly noted in the spaces that I monitor an uptick, which matches some of the assessments of, of law enforcement and many of these agencies. Again, some of the popular narratives t- uh, they're tapping into say things like, we told you so. They're um, really trying to lean into um, narratives that promote and foster polarization and divisions, especially that this is an assault on uh, Donald Trump's ability to run for president in 2024. And um, it's rinsing and repeating narratives and concerns that we saw, you know, with the Stop the Steal campaign and things like that. And it's really, um, you know, kind of tapping into this uh, narrative in the far right that they they are after you, and if they can go after a president, they will be able to come after you one day. And when they see their narratives laundered by major players in politics, in media, in pop culture, that really adds a lot of fuel to the fire that they're mm-hmm. trying to stoke. Yeah, and that's kind of what I find the most troubling here. I mean, we you know we expect this kind of rhetoric. We've seen this kind of rhetoric in the you know the the dark corners of the internet, the neo Nazi message boards, and so forth. That I know. Uh, you have been uh, following for years, uh, monitoring, I should say. Um, But the rhetoric, you know, there now seems to be nearly identical to what we are hearing from the most mainstream uh, right-wing media outlets and uh, even, you know, Republican elected officials in the Senate, in the House. But here's uh, Tucker Carlson, for example, the most popular personality on the most popular a cable news station just last night. These are acts of aggression and hostility aimed at Americans. 
No American president has ever done this. No American president has ever explicitly declared war on his own population. And yet for the Biden administration, it's a near weekly occurrence. And for good measure, they're disarming you because you cannot be trusted with guns because you're too dangerous. And just in case you missed the theme here, they're hiring another 87,000 armed IRS agents just to make sure that you obey. Got it? Got it, Tucker. So uh, Democrats and Joe Biden are explicitly now declaring war on Americans, uh, Stephanie Foggett, and they're disarming you and they're sending out an army of armed IRS agents to make you obey. Am I overstating it when I say that the rhetoric coming from Fox and even in many of these elected officials is barely imperceptible at this point from the sort of online threats and agitation that the DHS and FBI seem to be so worried about. No, you you are indeed correct. And I'd really worry about the what comes next, next what's the extension of this narrative. So mm-hmm. again, in the spaces that I look at, there is a focus on these narratives about dissidents. And I think this is pretty alarming and ironic that some of these have now permeated into the mainstream. Much of the far right's output is dedicated to threats of violence against political opponents and enemies. They actually celebrate the violence they eventually hope to met out one day. Um, And this includes some really troubling references. So there's been an uptick in references to um, the type of violence that was meted out against left-wing activists by right-wing military regimes in Latin America in the 70s and 80s. um, There are references to helicopters and helicopter rides where they used to throw um, opponents out of planes. There's also a heavy focus right now on um, that leans into... um, some really, really violent concepts that are drawn out of um, white supremacist fiction, mm. where they, um, they again, they draw on these fantasies that when they do reclaim power in America, that their enemies and opponents will be persecuted and executed. So in their worldview, there are no trials, there are no lawyers, there's no due process or free press. Um, there's only violence. So again, it's it's troubling because as we're seeing the uptick in, in the narratives that you spoke about earlier, I worry about the what comes next because there's already so much violent content out there about what the far right um, really does intend to do to its opponents. I worry, of course, about what comes next as well, and I, I want to ask you about that, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of wondering how much of this is actually due to that sort of re- uh, rhetoric that I played there, for example, from Tucker Carlson or from or from Don Jr. And, and even from uh, Trump himself, you know, who cited the weaponization of the Justice Department. And, uh, you know, if they can do this to Trump, they can do this to you. They're coming for you, all of that. Uh, there's obviously been an uptick of that rhetoric that we've seen. Uh, you know, in the right wing media, the the so-called mainstream right wing media in the days following the search, if they had not done that, if they had not used that kind of language, was the search itself merely enough to spark this? Is there even a way of quantifying that or did it, you know, require this sort of rhetoric coming from these uh, you know, respected individuals that uh, a lot of the uh, folks on the right look up to? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So I would say the violent ecosystem of the far right is multi-prong and dynamic. And what I mean by that is that there are moments where current events intersect with a hyper-focus on a group or issue that they target. So they want to capitalize on public attention. 
So when you see, um, you know, the FBI rising in the public consciousness, you're going to see them push out content and push out narratives about that too to kind of piggyback. But then there are also consistent messages against groups and communities that form the bread and butter of this every single day. So they can kind of push the levers to take advantage of. So again, it's this cycle between um, them being able to capitalize on public um, public attention mm. on an issue mm-hmm. and then while kind of keeping the steady pace of hate in many corners of the online of the online space. And, and does that uh, tell us that conversely, uh, that if their rhetoric was different, in other words, might, you know, calming rhetoric uh, from Trump and elected Republicans and right wing mis- uh, media and so forth. Do they even have the ability to sort of calm and, and, and dampen some of this outrage and, and these uh, violent uh, online threats and so forth? Do they I mean, if, if they can spark the outrage, it seems like they could also do the opposite of, of calming some of this down. No, absolutely. So, um, I, you know, every agency in America has now from intelligence agencies to law enforcement agencies, and even if you look at the multilateral level, UN, EU, others, mm-hmm. everybody has come to the assessment that the far right and domestic extremism is the greatest threat that America is facing today. So I think everybody in a position of power right now has a responsibility to understand, to recognize, and to take this, uh, this threat seriously and to think very, very carefully about how they can operate responsibly once you know what this challenge is, once you know some of their main, um, the main narratives and the ideology behind it, making sure that the actions that you take aren't, um, aren't adding fuel to this movement because, you know, at the end result of all of this is violence against communities. Today we're talking about the FBI, but as I said, this ecosystem has narratives in place to go after religious racial, ethnic minorities, as well as women in the LGBTQ plus community. So really, um, Mm. there's, I think, individuals and groups really do need to start thinking about this and taking more responsibility. Well, that's what I want. You know, when we say uh, thinking about it, I mean, Stephanie, what, if anything, you know, can or or should be done about any of this? I mean, what, what, if anything, is the cure, in other words? I feel sort of helpless in one respect. You know, knowing about what is going on is one thing, but what can actually be done about any of it other than, you know, we all sort of stay on guard and otherwise hope that the fever eventually burns itself out? I mean, it, it is tricky and there is no silver bullet. So there's no one single thing that, that can be done to address this. Um individuals, um, be mindful of the content that you share and you promote on social media. So many of these groups, they, um, they, they promote a whole host of content that they want to be viral, likable and shared. Um, there's a, a, you know, a tremendous onus on, on social media and online companies to make sure that they're, um, you know, as, as people are Googling this today, if you're mm-hmm. looking at Mar-a-Lago, if you're trying mm-hmm. to understand this, making sure that the search results aren't pushing them to some of this content. Uh, if you look at, um, you know, there have been interviews with people who've wound up caught in these movements, and they weren't originally looking for it. They just ended up down these rabbit holes through videos and alternative news sites. So we, mm-hmm. we should really make sure that um, we're not feeding this content to people who aren't looking at 
looking up for it or who are vulnerable to it. I know uh, for uh, many years there's been criticism of the, the large social media networks, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth, and Google, you know, that as, as you say, they're sort of uh, for, forwarding people to these sites. Uh, they've faced a lot of criticism for it. Have they gotten any better at that? Is it, in other words, is it less likely to happen than I'll look up, you know, Donald Trump's search Mar-a-Lago and end up at a far right uh, uh, site uh, feeding me disinformation about what actually happened? Are they taking accountability, responsibility? Are they getting any better at this? They certainly are, and they have. There is again one of the things that that's most enraging many of these actors is deplatforming. They use narratives about being silenced and removed from these spaces, which shows that um, you know many of the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, the big ones, they are removing them. Mm-hmm. But that said, they're dynamic, so they're they're constantly evolving and finding ways to get their content out. They're also using um, smaller platforms, so there are platforms that may not, um, you know, have the same um, means and attention as some of these big ones, but that those are really becoming hotspot areas where, again, a video, audio, and image content is being produced and shared. So we, we really do need to keep our eyes not just on the big platforms, but the smaller ones, too. And to some extent, you know, it feels like uh, you know, we, we need to keep our eyes on that. We need to hold the, the, the you know, the big uh, search uh, Google uh, companies and, and, and Facebook, so forth, uh, hold them accountable for this. But when you've got a former president of the United States talking, you know, using language that we used to only hear from the far, you know, reaches of the right, talking about the weaponization of the DOJ and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I, I, I don't know how you can avoid it. And it makes one wonder, you know, is there evidence as you see it um, with, you know, Trump's social media statements and so forth, his, his rhetoric at, at, at his rallies, that they are that he is you know, writing these, speaking these on purpose in order to spark this outrage and, yes, violence by his supporters. And if so, it doesn't sound like there's anything uh, that can be done about that when it comes to, you know, where people are directed by a search engine. Um, I, again, I think it's important that we recognize that there are violent actors out there today. Mm-hmm. They are emboldened and they are they're, they're ready. They have a whole host of grievances um, and and things in place. So, again, it's really about individuals in positions of power to be much more careful about the things that they say and how they interact with the violence that this movement promises. Good good luck uh, convincing (laughs) too many of them that are now showing up on Fox News and saying these things that we did not used to hear uh, in the in the you know mainstream spaces, um, Stephanie Foggett, I know that you and the Sufan Center study the rise of fascism and autocracy and and violent armed insurrections around the world. Are there either uh, you know warnings, uh, lessons that we might take from other countries where you see parallels to what is happening now in the U.S. Um, or perhaps more hopefully, any nations who went through something like this and found a way to get back to some sense of normalcy after after something like that. In other words, you know, ultimately, what is the cure? I- is there one? Um, I think education is important. I think, you know, the... 
the war on terror and the the past 20 years has meant that um, the public, but as well as that, researchers, journalists, and and agencies and government have been hyper-focused on Salafi jihadist-inspired terrorism. They've been focused on groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, We need to make sure that there is the public education and awareness about this threat, about what it looks like, and about what it means. Ultimately, at their core, these groups, they're anti-democratic, they're anti-liberal, and uh, they want to promote political systems that uphold and um, promote societal inequality, racism, homophobia, all of these things. So um, I think when people think about terrorism and extremism, we really need to make sure that they have um, the right framing and the right understanding about what that looks like today, what it may look like in the everyday things that they see online and interactions they may have with um, with people, and to make sure that they're equipped to, to respond. I do think um, building up amongst people the ability to reject this, that's ultimately what they're trying to do. These extremists are trying to breach the mainstream. They need mass appeal. They need mass attention. And if we can continue to isolate them by rejecting them, by ignoring them, by denouncing them, then I think that's one of the most potent things we can do. It is, and and to some extent, I, I would say uh, I completely agree with you. Had not it, they seemingly already broke into the mainstream, you know, into the Fox News is frankly into the White House, uh, a, a president uh, like Donald Trump. It seems like it puts us in a a whole different situation. And I don't know, uh, is there, before I let you go here, is there another country that we can look to that was able to get through something like this uh, and and return to a, a sense of normalcy? I do. I think it's important if we look at the country that neo-Nazis venerate the most, and that's Germany. Um, in fact, one of, the, um, one of the most troubling things I've been seeing is that you know, they're saying if, um, you know, if all of these lies are being said about, you know, a former president, think of all the lies that have been said about the Holocaust and about um, Adolf Hitler. So they, the neo-Nazis and far right today want to, um, they want to, what they're looking at is Nazi Germany, which was a horrific genocidal regime. And modern democratic Germany has come out of that. So I do think it's important to look at um, the policies that they have in place, how they talk about this, how they, um, you know, they take this incredibly seriously. Um, and I do think, again, places that have experienced this type of violence at such a scale, looking at some of what they've done. Um, Chile has just put out a new constitution, again, um, trying to uh, resolve the wounds of some of what happened under their far military mm-hmm. um, dictatorship mm-hmm. not so long ago either. So there are places we can look at and we can learn from. We can look at and we can learn from, and uh, things turned out better for them eventually, but boy, did they have to go through a lot of dark times to get there. Uh, Stephanie Foggett is the uh, research fellow at the Sufan Center, director of global communications at the Sufan Group, where they work very hard uh, to uh, educate the public, just as she is uh, describing is so necessary right now. Uh, you can find their work at thesufoncenter.org and on Twitter at the Sufon Center. Sufon is spelled S-O-U-F-A-N. Stephanie Foggett, really appreciate you joining us uh, today, as grim as this conversation is, and let's hope uh, we can do it again in the future and uh, perhaps uh, see a brighter day ahead. 
Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you, Stephanie. Okay. Oh, I told you we were going from the uh, from, from the, the light. great news to the <laughs> from grim. the light to the dark, and yeah. I just want to recap what she said about what can be done, the the steps that she said must happen. You have to isolate the right wing rhetoric. You have to educate the public about what it is and why it is bad and that it is happening. You have to reject it, and I think most important, denounce it. Well, I denounce it. Let me yep. just say that here and now. Yeah, that's I denounce me too. <laughs> it. Uh, and uh, you're, uh, you know, it, this is a tough one. This is a really tough one. In many respects, it feels like no matter what happens, you know, I, it feels like this is going to get worse. If he gets indicted, if he gets charged, if he gets jailed, all of this is going to get worse. And it feels like we, t- you know, we've been talking about uh, political violence rising. Uh, in in a number of shows over the past week, it feels like there is no way ultimately around it other than through it. Yes, I would agree with you on that. Hopefully we can get through it together. There's that anyway. (laughs) All right, quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and her latest Green News report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, today's Green News report was actually recorded prior to uh, President Biden's signing yes. of the, what's it called? The Inflation, Inflation Reduction, Reduction Act. Act. Yes. Um, uh, so we'll be a little bit behind the times on the GNR in that respect. Also, after today's uh, GNR, after we recorded today's GNR, some big news that you have been Uh, warning was likely coming for quite some time. Everybody knew this was coming. Anyone who pays attention to water woes in the West, uh, the federal government... And who doesn't pay attention to water woes in the (laughs) West? Yes, continue, please. Um, Yes, Uh, so the federal government on Tuesday announced new water cuts for southwestern states from the Colorado River because the Colorado River has plummeting levels of water. There just is not enough to go around. And, of course, that's in part due to man-made climate change and the the historic mega drought that is drying out the West. So a bunch of states are going to have to be dealing with that, including oh, yes. Arizona, Nevada, Colorado. Yep. It's uh, coming, folks. Yeah, it is. And it's here. It's here. And it's not good. Uh, that said, what is always good is our latest <laughs> Green News Report. On this vote, the yeas are 220, the nays are 207. The motion is adopted. Historic Inflation Reduction Act passes Congress. Just don't call it a climate bill. I'm gonna. Scientists surprised to find trees now growing in the Arctic. Plus, 100 million Americans will live in an extreme heat belt by 2050, study warns. All of those warnings and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It has been a busy week and a huge one for the president, with Congress passing the Inflation Reduction Act 
Act, which includes the single largest investment in combating climate change in U.S. history. In any other week, that would have completely dominated the headlines, but not this one. Well, it's still dominating our headlines. This is the Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, this headline from Fox News of all places, quote, Dodge announces last call for V8-powered muscle cars before they go electric. The times they are a-changing. Sad. What do you got for us today, Desi Doyen? Well, first, even though Democrats passed the largest climate action in U.S. history, man-made global warming has not stopped yet. Boo. New findings show that climate scientists have underestimated the rate of Arctic warming. It's not warming two times faster than the rest of the planet. It's four times faster. Uh-oh. And that has consequences. Yep. Transforming fragile ecosystems, disrupting animal migration, and releasing even more carbon from melting permafrost. Plus, Arctic warming is increasingly linked to changes in the jet stream that cause extreme weather systems to stall in place. Joe Biden can't sign that bill soon enough. And researchers publishing in the journal Nature say that they were surprised to find spruce trees growing in the Arctic tundra for the first time, hundreds of miles farther north than their normal range, a century earlier than climate scientists had predicted. Oops. In the lower 48 states, a new study warns that by 2050, about a third of the U.S. population will live in an extreme heat belt, where the heat index is projected to hit 125 degrees Fahrenheit at least one day a year. 125 degrees Fahrenheit? That's the heat index, which combines temperature and humidity to arrive at how hot it feels outside. Oh, well, that's not that bad. Huge swaths of the country will fall into this extreme heat belt, particularly the southeast and the midwest right now only 50 u.s counties are expected to reach a heat index of 125 degrees at least once a year but by 2050 that will jump to more than a thousand counties and the rise in extreme heat will hit non-white communities the hardest the report includes a database where you can look up the heat projections for your neighborhood we'll have a link at greennews.bradblog.com Meanwhile, as we go to air, President Biden later today will be signing the Inflation Reduction Act, the Democrats' landmark climate, tax, and health care bill, which passed Congress with zero Republican votes. I thought we weren't supposed to call it a climate bill. I'm calling it a climate bill because it contains the largest federal climate investment in U.S. history, directing $370 billion to investments in clean energy and infrastructure spread out economy-wide to decarbonize both U.S. industry and households. It builds U.S.-based clean energy manufacturing and a domestic supply chain. It is the first U.S. industrial policy of any kind in decades. And it comes not a moment too soon. Several independent analyses confirm that the bill will cut U.S. carbon emissions roughly 40 percent by 2030. Major concessions were made to secure the required vote of coal state Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, including a requirement to offer more public lands for oil and gas extraction alongside renewables and much more. Next, Manchin will get a separate bill later this fall that will streamline permitting for energy infrastructure, both fossil and renewable, angering environmental groups and frontline communities who say they will fight to shape that bill. 
However, even with those concessions to the fossil fuel industry, the consensus of climate policy experts is that the provisions will likely speed up the transition away from fossil fuels, according to energy journalist David Roberts in a recent broadcast. It's a giant bag of carrots. <laughs> so <laughs> the theory of change here is that these carrots will accelerate the development of renewable energy even further, even faster, and it's going to undercut the economics of of fossil fuels even further, even faster. And so fossil fuels are just going to lose on the market. So one of the things the models find is this bill is going to cause a net reduction in U.S. demand for oil and gasoline for the first time ever, ever. And finally, another major benefit, the law will cut deadly toxic air pollution, reducing childhood asthma and saving lives. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. just Yes. Just breathe. Yes, breathing is good. They have uh, completed, finally, the uh, so-called Build Back Better bill, now renamed the Inflation Reduction Act, and let the greening of America commence. (laughs) Yes. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Stephanie Foggett of the Soufan Center, and, of course, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. It is always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download all of them for free anytime, no paywall, at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who support our work to help Desi and me stay on your public (laughs) airwaves uh, by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate you're the only ones who do that so we greatly appreciate it bradblog.com slash donate drop me email if you like always good to hear from you I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters I am simply the Brad blog and we will see you there until we see you here next time hopefully tomorrow I'm Brad Friedman good luck world yeah.